This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. Well, I'm sitting here this afternoon with Charles Vogel, the author of Art of Community, um, at the Nice Ace Heads Conference, the Mohonk Mountain House. We just spent three inspiring hours listening to you talk about your experiences, about your book, and about making schools stronger communities. I want to take a page from your book and ask you a question uh, that you asked the group, which is, what inspired you to write this book about community and the power of belonging. Wow. So there are a number of experiences that inspired me to write the book. The moment where I realized there was a need for someone to write down the ideas that are in the book came at a lunch with um, Kevin Lynn, who is one of the founders and current chief operating officer of Twitch TV. If you don't know what Twitch is, it's an online platform that allows gamers, online gamers, to connect from around the world, largely using video. And today, Twitch has over 100 million unique users a month. And I remember at that lunch with Kevin, uh, he, had, he explained to me that he knew how many tens of millions of users they had. He knew how many uh, tens of millions of online gamers there are. He had a sense of how large the company could still grow serving online gamers. And one of his real priorities, uh, more than just getting more gamers online, was connecting the gamers who were voting with their eyes that this online community was important to them. And he shared that he didn't have a way to do that. He didn't know how you build that. Uh, and for obvious reasons, he didn't want his team to go experimenting and mucking with a model that had generated enormous success, worldwide success. And in that moment, uh, quite frankly, sitting over to Stata in San Francisco, I had this insight that uh, I'd spent the last several years studying religion and spiritual traditions, and he'd spent the last several years building an online company. And there was this way we could come together and bringing wisdom from different areas to create something new. Uh, something that would connect this generation in a way that had never been connected before. So I went home to write down uh, what I thought was going to be 20 pages ideas, of ideas I could pluck, distill from the spiritual traditions that I'd been studying for years, and share it with him that his team could use these ideas in their secular endeavor. And uh, when I was done, it was book length. And uh, my publisher um, saw it, and they wanted to release it to the world, and now we're talking. That's wonderful. Well, one of the things I loved about your book is that it seems so generally applicable in, across different types of organizations, different sectors. Um, so it's interesting to hear that, that your initial impetus came from the tech sector and, and a specific neighborhood in the tech sector, uh, which may have some more challenges or different challenges than a face-to-face -face company might have. But I wonder, you know, you're here at the Nice Ace Heads Conference. These are all school people. And I also thought it was fascinating that you mentioned uh, it isn't a common delivery that you make to schools, that, that, but it seems so relevant. And I'm wondering what your thought is about sort of the state of education, how your, how your book, what is, it, what is it that you understand about this moment in time as a society, 
young people in schools. Um, what is the message for schools, do you think, specifically in your book? Well, I think part of the relevance that I'm hearing this work has comes from this unfortunate reality that we are all living in what may be the loneliest generation in American history. Uh, the research indicates that Americans have less uh, community around them. Americans have less people they can turn to to talk to about important subjects. And there's a growing number of Americans that have nobody to talk to about important subjects to them. And unfortunately, this is such a crisis that recently the Harvard Business Review uh, just published an article by the former Surgeon General uh, entitled Loneliness in the Workplace. Uh, loneliness is such a crisis in America that it's a business concern and it's uh, expensive in large part because it's also a health concern that loneliness creates all kind of adverse health effects. Um, and uh, for those of us who recently read the New York Times article about uh, American teenagers having um, life uh, paralyzing anxiety and feeling disconnected and hiding away, uh, this is a reality of a whole generation, uh, people in school and out of school. And whatever else is true, heads of school are in a world where generations are showing up at their doors out of a context that's desperately lonely and in many cases having health effects uh, from it. And uh, it's a tragedy and the good news is that when leadership shows up, being the school administrators or anyone else, with ideas and efforts to address that, the metaphor I think of is it's like a squirt gun in the desert. Uh, nobody thinks a squirt gun is going to uh, create a forest in the desert but man almighty, uh, do we all want to find somebody with a squirt gun in the desert? And of course, these are ideas. So as we share the ideas and as they're implemented and as people embrace them and share them with others, we can spread them and hopefully we can create some kind of life in what sometimes feels like a desert. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in, in your introduction uh, that your own personal experience uh, with feeling disconnected, with feeling separate from community, maybe uh, not fully engaged or embraced by a community was a powerful motivator for you in terms of thinking through these ideas and, and, um, and then going on to build your own communities. As you imagine what specific things a school leader or a teacher or a coach might do if they were to pick up your book and then implement some of those techniques or some of the, be inspired by your message, what do you imagine might happen? What are, what are some tips that you would give to somebody who's thinking about how to change the experience of that kid that you might have been or that, that right. might be? Uh, the good news is those coaches and those teachers or those managers uh, know the people they want to bring together better than I do. They know their values, they know their history, they know their expectations, they may even know their aspirations. So because I don't know those things, I don't know what they should do. Uh, my work is about training leadership in at least two ways. One is sharpening their lens to see what's going on in relationships and a group of people to recognize uh, what's going on and what may be missing that as we step forward in leadership we can address, that we can put something there that's missing or we can shift something that's happening there that we no longer like. And the other thing that my work does is it gives them tools that when they see that something can be shifted or there's something missing, they can put it there. So <clears throat> I don't know what a given coach could do, for example. But I notice that a coach may notice where people who are coming together physically at practice, 
on a team bus at a game uh, may not feel as connected as the coach may want them to be because um, often just being in a physical space with people doesn't mean they feel connected. And in my experience, most of us have been in a crowded place and still felt lonely. In my book, I write about going to graduate school, a place I had to apply to go to. I had to get accepted. I had to literally move to go, move, to go there. I needed to show up every day. And I still felt lonely, surrounded by hundreds of people who did the same thing. So physically showing up doesn't do it. So the coach can, can notice, well, where is that connection not happening? And then install appropriate rituals or start appropriate conversations or schedule appropriate time where participants can build relationships and not just, say, practice skills or get to another activity. And a big part of building relationships in a group of people where we want those relationships to grow is respecting that takes time. Physically scheduling the time for people to learn one another's stories, for one another to learn their fears and or aspirations. And that may not do it. But if we schedule no time to do it, it'll almost certainly never happen. And then we wonder why people aren't feeling connected. So in my imagination, those are things that would make a difference. Sounds like it, the intentionality then of, of creating community and the, um, the, the power that individual people have to affect a negative situation that they may not be aware of is part of the message I think people can get from your book. Yeah. If I can give one concrete example, <clears throat> I was speaking to a uh, church leader in New York City this year. This is a famous church with an enormous building uh, right in Manhattan. And uh, it has a long history of serving um, citizens of Manhattan. Uh, but they're thought of a place where people uh, go there uh, because they're really well-dressed not because they're really committed to service or the community. And uh, one of the things I asked this pastor is, what are the stories that are shared about the history of this place, about what this church is doing? And the stories had to do with what the church did years ago, and in large part being in a magnificent building in a very well-to-do neighborhood. But the pastor also shared that there were stories about the congregation participating in civil rights movements and human rights movements that were not told, but the insiders knew. And what became very clear in that conversation was for that pastor to shift how that congregation was understood in that community such that it could track the younger New Yorkers who are looking for a church that wants to be active socially and be standing for justice and putting their resources and their time toward those values. Those stories were locked away. So one thing they could do is find out how could they get those stories out. Now, I don't know if that's from creating a radio show or a podcast or putting them on a flyer or, or speaking them out from the poll. I don't know the best way to do that, but I know that they recognize there are stories that can be shared, and when they're shared, the people that hear them will understand, oh, wait, that's a group of people I want to spend time with. There's something far more than just really well-dressed. And so that... Sounds to me like a pretty low cost, potentially very low cost solution to a problem that might actually be significant for an organization. They may be losing parishioners. They may not be attracting uh, a kind of robust um, community they want to have. And yet they don't have to go out and necessarily spend a huge marketing uh, campaign so much as they need to unlock something that already exists. And maybe by naming it the way you have in the book, you provide them with the kind of tools to know what to look for. Yeah. Uh, all the principles that I write about 
I believe can be used, or I've certainly experimented with, for virtually no hard costs. Um, obviously, if we want to create a new ritual or if we want to spread a story, for example, there are ways to spend money that might be better. And there are ways to do that for virtually no money. Often, the real investment that needs to be made right away is simply scheduling time to do it, which comes out of acknowledging, wow, this is important, and if we invest in this, a shift may happen. And we're in an era where many people don't understand the power of ritual, and they dismiss them, and so they literally don't schedule time to honor that. I uh, recently spoke with leadership at a school in Manhattan going through a big change, and they wanted to know how they could help students and faculty with that transition. I don't want to say too much to reveal who the team, who the, this leadership team is. And uh, when suggestions came forward in one of the meetings I was in, there was rebuttal from the room. Well, if we schedule that, we have to take it out of this part of the schedule. Well, if we ask them to be here, then they can't be here. We've got to give them time to walk across. If we, if we ask them to process from here to there, then we've got to get permission or whatever. And I remember thinking, gee, if anything that suggests in this room can never be scheduled for parental permission reasons, for liability reasons, for scheduling reasons, then I'm pretty clear what the results are going to be. And in this case, these efforts cost exactly zero. <laughs> it costs exactly zero to invite people into a room and say certain things or carry certain things to acknowledge that change. And what I got is they hadn't yet gotten to the place where they could invest the time because they hadn't valued this in contrast to the already scheduled uh, class time that was on the books months in advance. And I don't know how to help, help an organization that hasn't agreed to invest the time, no matter how much money they're willing or not willing to invest into something. Now, unfortunately, communities like everything else, you get results somewhat reflective of what you're going to invest in it. And if the leadership won't invest time, you're going to get results consistent with everything else you don't invest time in. I wish there was another way I would write that book. That's a powerful message. Well, one of the things I was thinking about when we met earlier is that uh, you let me know that uh, you have a five-week-old child, so you're a brand-new parent. And I wonder what you think about in terms of your own child's future, in terms of what your role as a parent is, mm -hmm. in terms of creating communities that your own child is a part of, uh, feels connected to. Do you think there's a message to parents in your book? Oh, my goodness. I've been thinking a lot about how understanding and actually uh, role modeling community building is important in this new role of my life. So one of the ways this has showed up is just taking care of the needs of my son, uh, who has needs on a schedule that isn't ours, right, at so many hours. And it becomes exhausting. And I'm aware that around the world, for millennia, whole villages have attended to those needs when they came up. And in our culture, uh, parents are largely squirreled away in their private residence, usually miles if not hundreds or thousands of miles away from that extended family that in any village for millennia would be right there to pick up the slack. And that we, uh, in squirreled away in our homes, we're often in neighborhoods where neighbors are not expecting to get a 10, 10 p.m. call that says, could you please watch my son for two hours while I nap because I'm exhausted. Right? Whereas when I was in the Peace Corps in northern Zambia, I think any villager would be happy to get that knock at 10 p.m. and hold a baby for two hours. Right? So 
I can acknowledge that we're in a culture where we've been separated away from community. We've had for millennia of years, and we're trying to do the same thing, and we're trying to do it better. So one of the ways that shows up in my life is to notice, when am I exhausted? When am I not delivering what I want my son to get that in a village he would get, right? A more calm mind, a, a fresh set of, of arms. And then notice who in my life may like the call that says, I would love for you to help. And the way you can help right now is just hold him for two hours while the exhausted people trying to hold it together uh, can, can get some rest. And of course, uh, it won't be a surprise to you, but it's always a surprise to me that they're always far more, when I make those calls, they're always far more excited to help than I anticipated because they are just like us. When people we already love call and say, could you help in a way that you can, it's, it's our favorite thing to do to demonstrate that we're friends and we want to be supportive. The other way it shows up is I've read the research that you're also aware of, that uh, Americans are lonely, it's creating health, it's health costs, creating mental breakdowns, and the trend's getting worse. So I know that I'm raising my son in an era where this is happening. And I know that if I don't attend to his skills in creating relationships, bringing people around him, uh, letting people around him know that he wants support and he can welcome it and demonstrate how much he wants to support the people in his life. If I just trust it's going to happen on its own, it's not going to happen. And he might be as miserable as the people we're reading about. And he's not going to be a resource to address this crisis around people that it looks like he's going to be around with this crisis. And so I've been thinking about what efforts we as parents need to go out of our way to demonstrate the investment we're gonna to need to make when we meet his friends and the parents of his friends so that we role model that and we're teaching these lessons so that co at least that cohort enters this culture with stronger skills than the cohort outside of this group so that at least this group, hopefully at least this group will grow stronger and maybe if we're lucky, be beacon to, them around, to those around them that will address this pain that we know is around. Wow, that would really be great. One of the wonderful things I heard during the break earlier was from a head of school in one of our member schools who talked about how his middle school head had assigned your book to the faculty and shared the book with a bunch of parents. And they were sitting down talking at a parent coffee hour about many of the topics that you bring up about community and specifically about belonging. And he felt that it really unlocked for these parents and understanding that what they were calling bullying was not necessarily in this context anyway, bullying so much as it was a sort of critical lack of belonging that their kids were suffering from. And so I can imagine that your book would have a lot of, and your message generally would have a lot of resonance with parents who are trying to figure out why their kids are so disconnected and really maybe thinking about the wrong solution because they don't quite have the tools that you present the talking about how important that kind of belonging can be and the tools you might use to, uh, to correct it. So I think it's really a hopeful sign. Um, yeah, I, as you know, we're sitting here amongst uh, educators who every day are speaking with and serving whole families. And I have a lot of respect for both the educators and the parents that are looking for a way to raise children in a cultural context that has never existed before. Right? There's been no generation that has uh, come together on social media, um, had pain from social media, 
activity, uh, the documentation of childhood hijinks on social media. It's absolutely unprecedented. And so uh, all of us need to be aware that we are in uncharted territory and need to experiment to find out what's going to create healthy relationships because we can't trust everybody else who's never done this before is going to find a healthy way to do it. And I admire people who are re-looking at challenges using old language and noticing, wait, this is different now. Right? And I um, have heard from parents how they were shocked how their kids stay at home on weeknights and weekends in their bedroom um, on a device. And they've realized that their kids are socializing from their bedroom. And of course, unsupervised and whatnot. Um, I don't know what type of relationships are not be forming, are not forming, that will become critical when crisis comes about. All of us who are old enough know that crisis happen, right? People get sick, accidents happen, homes burn down. And relationships that may work when those crises aren't there may look like they're okay. But when the crisis happens, we want to make sure those relationships are there, that we can stand together. And none of us know whether the patterns we're seeing now are creating those relationships for those tough days. Well, I want to thank you and, and uh, acknowledge the contribution that your book presents to the discourse on this really difficult issue. And I, I think that you know one of the things I took away as a reader, and I imagine this is true for others, is that there are some hopeful signs. There's some possible um, you know, things that we can reconnect to that you've identified in your research into thousands of years of religious traditions. And I imagine that your work in the Peace Corps, living in a, a community that, as you described, uh, people would come out of their homes at 10 to help raise the neighbor's kids, must have inspired you and I think can help us connect to a more uh, basic sense of belonging that really existed at one time and maybe can exist again. So thank you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.